All right, Alexander, let's uh, do an update as to what is happening in Ukraine. So uh, what is happening in Ukraine? A bit of a, of a pause, it seems, in, in the activities on the front line. Um, artillery duels in most of the areas on the front line. Uh, I guess Artyomov's Bakhmut is where we're seeing most of the, of the action. Uh, what, what's happening in, in the front lines right now, Alexander? Well, I think you've summed it up exactly. I mean, uh, Ukraine's offensive, this great offensive that we've been hearing about for months, it was launched with a bang in the first two weeks of June, and it's basically ground to a stop. We're now involved in what the Russians and the Ukrainians like to call positional warfare. Positional warfare is lots of shelling by each side against the other. Um, what you do see from time to time in various places is Ukraine launching relatively small groups of infantry against the Russian front lines. The Russians attack these infantry units with artillery and drones. They don't waste time, as far as I can tell sending helicopter gunships and those kind of things. I mean, that, that's held back to deal with any armoured vehicles that appear. Anyway, the Ukrainians launch these attacks with these light infantry forces. The infantry gets completely knocked out by the Russian guns and machine guns, and things go back basically to where they were. And that is now the story along the Zaporozhye front lines. It's the story in Kherson region. Ukrainians again tried to uh, send troops across the Dnieper River near the Antonovsky Bridge. I'm sure you remember the Antonovsky Bridge from last year. This is the bridge that connected the city of Kherson on the west bank of the Kherson uh, of the Dnieper River with the east bank of the Dnieper River. The Ukrainians were shelling it continuously with high Mars missiles to prevent the Russians using it to send their troops and equipment across. Anyway, that was what, <clears throat> that was last year. Um, when the Russians withdrew, they blew up the central parts of the Antonovsky Bridge. The Ukrainians tried to use what was left of the Antonovsky Bridge on the east bank to provide cover from Russian artillery for their soldiers. The Russians launched missile strikes they launched bomb strikes against those soldiers, and from what I can see, they were all uh, basically um, killed, except a small number of them that are now trapped on the East Bank and who the Russians are gradually clearing out. So we've had incidents like this. The only place where there is major fighting as part of the offensive still going on is, as you correctly say, Artyomovsk, the former Bakhmut, um, the commander of Ukraine's ground forces, General Sirsky, has uh, actually now made it clear that the objective is to recapture Bakhmut. That's what he says. Um, there was a major battle, a major fight last night in a village called Kleshayevka near Bakhmut, which was captured by the Wagner organization at the start of this year as part of Wagner's push to capture um, Bakhmut. Um, from what I can gather, lots of fighting, lots of Ukrainian soldiers killed, and in the end, the Russians pushed the Ukrainians back and continue to remain 
firmly in control of Kalesha Yevka. So that's the major offensive. That's the only place where Ukraine is launching big attacks at the moment. Now, there is another story going on, and it's not been very well reported. Um, Andrei Martyanov touched on it over the course of our live stream, the, the live stream we did with him um, the day before yesterday. But there are now increasing Russian advances going on in the northern parts of the front line. This is a quiet Russian offensive, if you like, that's going underway. Very different from the Ukrainian one, very methodical and incremental, like all Russian offensives up to now have been. But the Russians are now gradually, steadily tightening their grip on Kupiansk, which is in Kharkov region, one of the towns that Ukraine captured over the course of its Kharkov counteroffensive. They seem to be slowly tightening their grip on Siversk, um, which is in Donetsk region, but right at the north. And they seem to be slowly closing in on Liman, which they captured back in May. The Ukrainians recaptured it, I think, in October or November. The Russians are gradually returning there. And this morning, there's been some stories about Russian advances in other places, in Marinka, in Vugladar, but nothing very dramatic. So, for the moment, the Ukrainian counteroffensive has basically run out of steam. Zelensky tells us that the major forces have still not been committed. I'm not sure that's true, by the way. But anyway, we've had bitter comments from a resurfaced General Zelushny saying, you know, what crazy person would order an offensive without air cover and with less um, ammunition for your guns than the Russians have. But that's essentially what he said. Very bitter and angry piece that he gave to the Washington Post. We've had Alexei Aristovich resurfacing. He also seems to think the offensive has run out of steam. That's the story. Yeah, well, the offensive has run out of steam. I think that's clear to everybody. So the big question is, we're a few days away from the big NATO meeting. And uh, what, what, what does NATO say? What does NATO do? If, if there's no false flag, if nothing big happens, let's, let's just say that nothing big happens. There's no ZMPP attack. There's no big false flag. Uh, we, we, we roll into the, the NATO meeting in the next three, four days, and all the NATO member states, they see the Ukraine counteroffensive as one big failure. It's gone nowhere. And, and um, the, the numbers that have come out as, far, as, as for Ukraine's losses in um, vehicles and weapons and tanks and soldiers is horrendous. It's catastrophic. And even the NATO members are not going to be able to, uh, to deny these catastrophic losses. I'm seeing numbers of 20,000 Ukraine uh, troops lost in this uh, counteroffensive. And this is not coming from the Russian side of things. I mean, this is, be, this is now accepted <coughs> that Ukraine yeah. lost a lot of men and material as, as they launched this counteroffensive. And they've gone nowhere. They have gone nowhere. So what does NATO say? What do they do? Because you, you can provide more and more weapons, but 
obviously it's not going to make a difference. And Ukraine is running into an even bigger problem than, uh, than weapons, which is men, soldiers. They, they can't keep on repeating this over and over again, a counteroffensive after counteroffensive, because they're, they're, they're simply running out of uh, people. What, what does NATO do? What do they say? Well, well, indeed. I mean, they're running out of trained men, especially. But, I mean, they're now having to call up more and more people, and they're apparently throwing them into battle with just a few weeks' training, which is uh, disastrous. And um, there's an argument about, between Poland and Germany about who's going to repair um, uh, Ukraine's broken Leopard 2 tanks. And one gets the sense that recriminations are now the order of... <laughs> are, are now what's really going on behind the scenes. Um, and you're talking about NATO. Let's talk about NATO. First of all, they weren't able to agree to a replacement to Jens Stoltenberg. So they've had to ask Jens Stoltenberg to cling on for a further year. Um, Biden's choice, it is now clear... Ask for order. <laughs> order, order, order. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Biden's... Uh, preferred choice was Ursula. I mean, that's now been fairly well confirmed. He wanted Ursula to go over. Ursula looks at the situation in Ukraine. She says, I don't want to have anything to do with this. I want to stay. This is her new plan. I want to stay as president of the European Commission. I don't want to go to, I don't want to become Secretary General of NATO. Ben Wallace who did want to become Secretary General of NATO, Biden and the Pentagon apparently said, unacceptable. And we're now hearing in the media in Britain that what made the Pentagon very angry with Ben Wallace was that Ben Wallace pushed, as far as the Americans were concerned, too hard on sending F-16s to Ukraine. And it seems that they're now trying to row back on the commitment to send the F-16s, and the Ukrainians are complaining the training of pilots to fly F-16s didn't start in June as it was supposed to. It hasn't even started yet. And one gets the sense that with the Americans seeing their Bradleys burning on the Ukrainian steps, on the southern steps of you know this area, with uh, they don't want the same... They don't want the world to see their F-16s being shot down, and they're now cooling on that idea as well. So there's lots of recriminations going on, and no real clear idea of what to do. So they had a meeting in Copenhagen with diplomats from the BRICS countries, of course not Russia, but the BRICS countries, and some of the other states. Turkey was there. Apparently even Iran was there. Um, and the idea was to try and see whether they can get these countries to agree to try to persuade the Russians to enter into some kind of negotiation. Apparently, the representatives of the BRICS countries said, well, what is your plan? And there was no plan. So that meeting apparently ended without any real result, without anything really being achieved. It's been barely reported in the media, <clears throat> which is another sign that nothing very much came of it. There's a lot of, there was a lot of talk, if you remember a few weeks ago, about um, Poland in particular sending troops into Ukraine. 
Some Russian politicians are still playing that up. There were comments of Vladimir Rogov, who was a Russian uh, politician um, in Zaporozhye, and other members of the Duma are saying, you know, let's wait and see. The polls may be coming. Um, apparently, the mood in Poland has turned strongly against that idea. My own, my own sense is that they have no plan, no real agreement. Some talk about... Um, Security guarantees, Anders Volkald Rasmussen, the former NATO Secretary General, the person who was saying just a couple of weeks ago that the Poland and the Baltic states might send troops into Ukraine unilaterally if Ukraine wasn't given a timeline to NATO membership. Well, Ukraine is not going to be given a timeline to NATO membership. We've been told that categorically. But um, Rasmussen now says that the Poles and the uh, Romanians and the Baltic states are instead, they're not looking now to send in troops, they're now talking about providing Ukraine with some kind of guarantees for future assistance in the event that it finds itself in a conflict, which, as you absolutely rightly said in one of, your, one of our videos, is absolutely no different from what the West is doing at the moment. So... It looks to me as if there isn't a plan, that there are recriminations, that there's arguments. The Pentagon seems to be turning against the F-16 idea. The, uh, uh, they're also, it seems, turning against the Attackums idea. Um, I suspect the neocons in Washington have not given up, and we'll probably come to them in a moment. But overall, I get the sense of a summit meeting in Vilnius where everybody's divided, nobody can agree, there's no clear sense of a way forward, and they were all putting all their cards, all their chips, on this Ukrainian offensive, and of course, it's failed. Yeah, the, the neocons, Lincoln, Newland, um, Poland, the UK, they want escalation. They want war. I believe they they want to go all the way. That, that's my oh, sense. The, yeah, the the Sullivans, the Biden White House. I don't, I don't even want to say the Biden White House. The DNC, the Democrat Party that controls Sullivan and manages the Biden White House. Whether Biden is going to to run again for re-election because you never know with Biden what can happen or they put someone else in his place, a Newsom or Kamala Harris, whoever, the Democrats, the DNC, I'm convinced that they're looking at the situation and they're consulting with Sullivan, who, as we have said many times, he is a campaign guy. He's a campaign manager. He's not an NSA guy. He's not an Intel guy. He's not a diplomat. He's a campaign guy. And they're saying, you know what? Let's just manage this conflict so that we don't lose and Russia doesn't win. And let's just see if we can manage this until November 2024. And we see that, that the American public, the voters, are going to be very unhappy if Ukraine turns into Afghanistan. So whoever we have running is going to bite the dust if this turns into Afghanistan. The American public does not want American boots on the ground. So Poland, the UK that are pushing us to escalate and they're saying World War III, what they really mean is, hey, American troops, 
go to Ukraine because the UK has no military. Poland would get annihilated very quickly by the Russians. So they're basically saying NATO entering Ukraine, that means the US entering Ukraine. So they're like, the American public does not want that either in an election year. So what do we have to do? We've got one year, one year in change. Can we manage this so that Russia doesn't win? Ukraine doesn't lose? We don't get an Afghanistan debacle? And we can just carry this over until after the elections. And then after the elections, we'll, we'll see which direction we want to go with, which, with, with whoever is, is president of uh, the United States, if you assume that the Democrats uh, win the election. What do you I, think? Think, I, I think it's exactly what's going on. And by the way, you get clues about this. And the best clues are coming from Britain. The British are very, very, very bitter and very angry. Now, I've been saying for a long time that Britain going all the way out supporting Ukraine, it was setting itself up as a scapegoat for some people in the US in the event that the US decided to change course. And we're starting to see some signs of that. So I've just talked about how the British, uh, the Americans basically vetoed Ben Wallace's application to become NATO Secretary General. And they're, they're openly blaming him for trying to stampede them into providing fighter jets to Ukraine. So you can already see that. And now you had crazy comments from people like Tobias Elwood. I'm sure you know him. He's a, an MP that we have, former military man. I think he's the chair of the Foreign Relations Committee of the British House of Commons. It's rather alarming that he should be there. Anyway, he's given this, frankly, I think slightly demented interview in which he says that Britain is, a, that there's Britain is involved in a war in Europe. We're giving all our weapons to Ukraine. We must declare martial law and, you know, prepare for war with Russia. I mean, I don't think he meant all of the things that he was saying. You just have to watch the interview to see how he was getting swept along by his own rhetoric. But you can also again sense that he feels that things are, that the sands are running out on this, uh, that the time is running out on this, and that this is because the Americans, the, the, the Americans are starting to turn away. And you're absolutely right, not the neocons, not Newland, not Blinken, but the DNC, Sullivan, for them, winning the election is the overriding priority. They don't want a military debacle, a, 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 another Afghanistan multiplied by 500 happening in Ukraine on their watch before the, before the election. Uh, so, so you are starting to see this. You're starting to see the shift. But unfortunately, it's easy to talk about a shift. It's easy to talk about some mechanism of trying to dial this war down to keep it rumbling away at some level, but avoiding some kind of decisive outcome until November. It's much less easy to do. How do you do it? Because, of course, you can control what the Europeans do. You can control up to a point what the Ukrainians do. And by the way, let's talk about the Ukrainians, because there was this big build-up, something big was going to happen with the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. Um, um, 
the night before last, there was huge numbers of rumours, I'm sure you picked them up, that there was going to be some kind of incident at the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. The night passed, nothing happened, everything was quiet, lots of reports that people came and spoke and said that, you know, to the Ukrainians, let's not uh, press forward and uh, uh, do anything. So, who knows? But you can control the Ukrainians up to a point. You can control the U Europeans almost entirely. You can't control the Russians. And the Russians have their own plans. And they're building up their forces. And they're uh, building up their military equipment. And they're coming up with their own ideas. And that's going to be very difficult to do. And the only way that you can achieve anything with the Russians now is by talking to them. And politically, that will be very difficult. Yeah, even uh, Newsweek, they had this, uh, this article, this investigative uh, research uh, article where uh, they, they profiled the CIA's involvement in Ukraine. And they essentially said that uh, the CIA is indeed trying to manage this conflict. And they're trying to make it so that Ukraine wins, but... This doesn't spill over to become uh, a type of World War III scenario. So the CIA is managing this conflict to prevent a catastrophic war. But the article says that the CIA can control Europe, can, can manage the allies. It's obviously working with the Biden White House and it's looking after the best interests of the Biden White House and the American people. Okay, that's what the article says as well. But the article says that... They cannot manage not only Russia, their big problem is managing Ukraine, because what the article is claiming is that the CIA, even though they get assurances and promises from Ukraine that they're not going to strike Russian territory and they're not going to do this and that, they end up doing it. And the CIA is having a real big problem trying to manage the Alesky regime. And they actually come out and say that in two instances, the Alesky regime went and did things, attacks against Russia without, or, or let's say Russian infrastructure, without uh, getting the green light from them. And the one instance is the Kerch Bridge, and the other instance is the Nord Stream Pipeline. And the article is just basically saying Ukraine is blowing up stuff, including Nord Stream, and they're not running it by us. So this is our problem in managing this war. They're afraid that maybe Ukraine's going to do something because they're out of control and they're going to do something. And... This is going to spill over into, into a wider conflict. So there's obviously a lot of management that is trying to, uh, to take place here in this, yeah. this conflict. It was an incredible uh, article. It was. It was. The, I, 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 I would also point out, by the way, that Newsweek's published a further article, which also says that Putin has been strengthened by the Prigozhin affair. So, I mean, some people are starting, to, the penny's starting to drop there as well. But anyway... Let's go back to that article. I mean, you know, you, the Ukrainians are difficult to control. They don't always tell us the truth. Sometimes they lie to us. Well, who would have thought any of this? I mean, this is, must be, you know, must be so surprising to people in the West. I mean, you know, if you get yourself, if you start align yourself with people like Zelensky, Budanov, Podolyak, um, um, Danilov, all of these people. I mean, what do you expect? <laughs> I mean, trying to 
control these people, trying to sort of run things with them, it's like, it's like herding cats. I mean, it's impossible, but impossible, I'd have thought. So you're absolutely right. They're going to have a major problem. They're going to have a, ma- they're going to have a major problem with Ukraine. And they're going to have a major problem with the Russians. Now, the Russians are, by contrast, well, compared to the Ukrainians, they are um, a model of discipline and logic. But it's a logic that the Biden White House has consistently rejected. (laughs) So what do they do? How do they balance this? Well, they're going to have a real serious, very, very serious problem. And I have to say again, um, I I, apologising apologize for bringing this up all over again but it does remind me again a lot of vietnam because the us eventually did enter into direct negotiations with the north vietnamese and found them implacable <laughs> which is completely unsurprising given the history of that conflict and given the kind of people the north vietnamese were and they found that they couldn't really control the south vietnamese either and that is what they're going to get with spades <laughs> multiple times over in Ukraine. Because, of course, to say it straightforwardly, some of these people in Ukraine are now so deeply in, they're so heavily implicated, uh, and they have so many crazes that they're trying to control when they're not crazes themselves, that, I mean, they're in, a very, they're in an impossible position themselves anyway. So how, how the Biden administration, how the DNC squares this impossible circle, I have absolutely no idea. But ultimately, the Russians have said it. It's very simple. Putin has said, look, very simple. You want peace. It's very simple what you do. You stop supplying arms to Ukraine. You sit down and you talk with us. <laughs> That's what Putin has said. Will the Americans do it? It's impossible. It's impossible because you you can't. You, they've labeled Putin as as this demonic dictator, and Russia's this 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 demonic country. How can you sit down and and talk to talk to yeah. them? It's they, they've boxed themselves in. Well, this I is mean, their they, own making. This is of their well, own making. Just like they they they're doing with China as well. It's they're copy and pasting the whole thing now with China. So you can't negotiate because you negotiate with with Putin or with Russia after all the propaganda that you've thrown out against Putin and Russia. And once again, you have election problems. Yeah, up to and including, by the way, an ICC uh, warrant, which um, the ICC has no jurisdiction to order, but which nonetheless the ICC has issued. So how do they get around all of that? (laughs) What are they going to do with all of this? It's very difficult to see a simple solution to this. And I don't really know that they have one. And that's why uh, Vilnius is going to turn into a chaotic uh, summit. We're going to have Biden there. We're going to have all kinds of uh, statements published. Probably we will see hear more about, you know, supporting Ukraine for as long as it takes and all of that. But behind the scenes, lots of recriminations uh, um, as it becomes increasingly clear that this offensive isn't going to achieve anything. And, of course, the reality on the battlefield is that the Russians are getting stronger. That's the key thing people need to understand. Um, According to Shoigu, the Russian defence minister, 1,400 men are applying to join the Russian military every day. 
We've been hearing lots of reports about an enormous increase in Russian weapons production, tanks, ammunition, all that sort of thing. Two new tank armies have been trained up, and an army corps. We've been trained up to um, battle readiness by the end of June, which, assuming that that timeline hasn't slipped, means that they're battle ready now. And more troops, more machines, more weapons, more aircraft coming on, joining the Russian um, military every single day. So th this is this is the problem. Yeah, the the Russian military is getting stronger. The Russian economy is getting stronger. Russian diplomacy is getting stronger. BRICS is getting stronger. The SCO is growing and getting stronger. Belarus is now set to join the SCO as well. Iran has joined already. Uh, and, there's a uh, huge line to, to enter. And, yeah. the BRICS, uh, and the BRICS apparently meeting in September to discuss a gold-backed yeah. reserve currency. So, I mean, you know. Yeah. Uh, a huge line to, to join BRICS. Putin's popularity stronger and then you contrast that with Ukraine, failed state, failed economy. The more interviews I see with Zelensky, the more I realize that the guy is, is in panic mode. He's afraid for his own, uh, his own existence. It's obvious that he is afraid that someone's going to take him out. That is why he's doing these, these fluff interviews with CNN in, uh, in Odessa. Um, the Biden White House, okay. I don't think we need to say anything there. They're finding white powdery stuff inside the, the, the West Wing. Europe is in collapse. Germany's in collapse. Ivde is surging. Marine Le Pen is surging. <laughs> the problem is, is that you're going to have a Joe Biden in Vilnius, and they've demonized Russia. They've demonized BRICS. They've demonized China. They've demonized the multipolar system. And Biden himself is so emotionally out of sync that I don't even think Biden could bring himself to, uh, to speak with, with any of the leaders outside of the collective West. I don't think there's one leader outside the collective West that Biden can actually have a, a conversation with because he's completely emotional about everything. And then all the European Union leaders, all the EU leaders, the NATO, the NATO leaders, they're all emotional. There's no rationality, except for Orban. Everyone else is completely emotional and they're completely absorbed in this, uh, the, the, this grand chessboard strategy of, uh, of destroying Russia and going after China, and they're going to be the all-powerful globalists. Well, this is exactly right. I mean, talk, let's just talk about Biden. I mean, you know, he sends Blinken to Beijing. Be Blinken is put through, you know, the, the grinder, but he does come up with a working party. Biden can't contain himself. He calls... Xi Jinping a dictator. It, it's all a mess. So they're trying to send Yellen to Beijing to try to sort of repair the damage. Doesn't seem as if the Chinese are very impressed. How does Biden row back on all the things that he said about Putin? He's not emotionally capable of doing that. I mean, if he tries, his visceral feelings about Putin, which are incredibly strong, Will, will come to the surface very quickly. As for the others, Scholl, Olaf Scholz has been trying to call Putin for weeks, months apparently. Putin isn't interested in speaking to him. He's lost all uh, confidence in Scholz. Macron the same. Macron 
uh, um, took up an enormous amount of Putin's time, talking about all kinds of clever plans that never came to anything. And, of course, um, Putin discovered that in, over the course of their last meeting, last telephone call, um, Macron had the entire French media there by his side, uh, um, listening into the conversation, and did that without telling Putin about it in advance. And you do not do that with Vladimir Putin. So Putin isn't interested in talking to him either. So who does Putin talk to in the West? Well, I think he might be willing to talk with some of the military and security people in the United States. I mean, notice that um, Burns, the CIA director, he's about the only person anybody wants to talk to anymore. Um, he called Narishkin in Moscow. Um, they might be prepared to talk with the military people. But it's going to be very, very difficult to um, agree to any kind of negotiations with between the Russians and the West because trust has completely collapsed. The Russians have come to exactly the same views about Biden that the Chinese have done. They come to exactly the same views as the one that you expressed, that he's too emotionally invested in this anyway to draw back. And it, it, this is actually, we come back to the original point that you were making about the DNC. They want to find some way to get Joe Biden, Joe across the uh, uh, finishing line next uh, in November next year. But what they want to achieve, some kind of stabilisation of the international situation, may not be possible while Joe Biden remains president. I mean, maybe their better strategy is to look for someone else. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Biden is not the best uh, diplomat, and I'm, I'm being very polite. <laughs> he never has been either. Yeah. This is not this is not an age thing. No, he has never been a good no. foreign policy diplomat guy. Never. No, and he's never been well liked. So. Anyway. Well, MBS doesn't like him. All right, like we'll him. end it there. MBS doesn't like yeah. him. Putin doesn't like him. Xi Jinping doesn't like him. Apparently Modi, uh, uh, and despite all the, all the people were saying about that meeting with Biden and Modi, they didn't get on again. Apparently, this is what I'm hearing from Indian sources. Nobody likes him. Yeah, and this has been his 50-year career. This is, yeah. once again, this is not his, his, uh, his presidency and his age thing that... That makes him unlikable. He's never been a likable person. The British especially don't. When the British, other, the yeah. British don't like him either. All you need to do is read what they say about him in the media here. Yeah. All right. Uh, we'll end it there. The Duran.locals.com. We are on Rumble, Odyssey, BitChute, Telegram, and Rockfin. And go to the Duran shop. Ten percent off. Use the code. Good day. Take care.